0: Hello, welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman.
1: And I'm Louise Palenker.
0: You know, we're where you go to find what you need when you want to experience something new on the creative landscape. We are like the Overstock.com of media content. And today, we are gifted to have two talented guests on for you to meet. First, Dinah Manoff. Dinah's an actor and a director and a writer. She's been part of groundbreaking television and film like Soap and Grease and Empty Nest, We had David Leisure on a couple of weeks ago. He was fantastic. She's written a wonderful novel about show business called The Real True Hollywood Story of Jackie Gold. We'll talk all about her when we get to her in just a second. And then we're going to meet Jo Beth Williams, pretty much a boomer goddess, appearing in films like Kramer vs. Kramer, The Big Chill, Stir Crazy, Poltergeist. She's currently starring with Peter Strauss in a production of Love Among the Ruins at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood. We're going to find out about all those things in a minute or two. Weezy, what is your offering this week? Fritz, I've been doing some reading. I'm not surprised. Yeah.
1: This book is called A Fever in the Heartland. It's by Timothy Egan. In the Roaring Twenties, the KKK hated blacks, Jews, Catholics, and immigrants, and aside from the sheet burkas which hid their faces, they were proud and out loud about it. They mixed and stirred their racism with religion, piety, and temperance, busting up speakeasies and pummeling adulterers as quickly as they'd burn a cross and throw a rock through a window. Quoting the word of God, they'd recruit from the pulpit, enlisting preachers, businessmen, police officers, judges, lawyers, congressmen, and senators. Entire families were inspired by an urgency to quell the sins of the Roaring Twenties. Parents and kids alike belonged to Klan-themed organizations, and folks got their news from Klan-approved publications. It's got a familiar ring to it, doesn't it, Fritz? (laughs)
0: You've hooked me already.
1: Yeah. So, especially when you get to their top man, he was called DC Stevenson. He was a malevolent huckster who rose from obscurity to become Grand Wizard, studying the speeches of Mussolini and learning what makes people hate. Stevenson wielded a brazen blend of charisma and corruption to enrich himself, control the law in 21 states, and flaunt his exemption from the Klan's Puritan dictates with hedonistic parties floating in bootleg liquor and sexual exploits that saw women savaged at the hands and fists and teeth of Stevenson. And then DC met Madge Oberholzer, a 28-year-old enlightened independent educator. Stevenson drugged, kidnapped, and assaulted her, barbarically mauling and biting her at gunpoint during a craven three-day ordeal with henchmen preventing her escape. Madge's deathbed testimony pulled the hood off the horrors of the Klan. It's a story that echoes across decades and centuries. What we see when we align this period in the 20s alongside the Jim Crow South and Rachel Maddow's book Prequel, which examines American fascism in the 30s, is we see these patterns of racism by many names throughout history. The Know Nothing Party, the John Birch Society, the Tea Party, MAGA. The names change and their public facing ideals may shift, but their core is caked in racism. They wish to surround themselves with only their kind, and doing so requires the exclusion and destruction of others in a way which demonizes them and paints their cause as the right and decent thing to do. i got to read that book. Oh, yeah. No, you're going to love it. We can rage against these darker elements of our nature, or we can understand that these fear-based impulses reside within each of us. We can all challenge ourselves to work harder at being better and doing better when it comes to inclusion and the understanding of one another. In the book, Egan quotes W.E.B. Du Bois who said of the KKK, behind the yelling cruel eyed demons who break, destroy, maim, lynch, and burn at the stake is a knot, large or small, of normal human beings and these human beings at heart are desperately afraid of something. Watch Governor Pritzker's Northwestern commencement speech. He says, the kindest person in the room is often the smartest.
2: The best way to spot an idiot, (laughs) look for the person who is cruel. Let me explain. When we see someone who doesn't look like us or sound like us or act like us or love like us or live like us, the first thought that crosses almost everyone's brain is rooted in either fear or judgment or both. That's evolution. We survived as a species by being suspicious of things that we aren't familiar with. In order to be kind, we have to shut down that animal instinct and force our brain to travel a different pathway. Empathy and compassion are evolved states of being. They require the mental capacity to step past our most primal urges. This may be a surprising assessment because somewhere along the way in the last few years, our society has come to believe that weaponized cruelty is part of some well thought out master plan. Cruelty is seen by some as an adroit cudgel to gain power. Empathy and kindness are considered weak. Many important people look at the vulnerable only as rungs on a ladder to the top. I'm here to tell you that when someone's path through this world is marked with acts of cruelty, they have failed the first test of an advanced society.
0: Gosh, I wonder who he was talking
2: about. (laughs) They never forced their animal brain to evolve past its first instinct. They never forged new mental pathways to overcome their own instinctual fears, and so Their thinking and problem-solving will lack the imagination and creativity that the kindest people have in spades. Over my many years in politics and business, I have found one thing to be universally true. The kindest person in the room is often the smartest.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you played that. That was wonderful.
1: Isn't he, he? Yes. He's able to summarize it. In one sentence.
0: Without naming names. he's a brilliant uh, name. It's beautiful. Yeah. Nicely done, Waze. What have you got, Fritz? All right. I, I, You know, there isn't a Ken Burns project that I don't love, this one included. It started last week on PBS. It's the American Buffalo. This is the story of the most majestic and mystical creature of the plains, the buffalo or the bison. It's two two-hour segments. The arc of it is the nearly complete depletion of the buffalo herds in the plain states, then their partial rebirth thanks to conscientious philanthropists. It also follows a parallel line of decline and near extinction of the Native American population in North America as well. Each story is a metaphor for the other. At one point, Until the end of the 1800s, there were 5 to 10 million buffalo on the continent. At their lowest point in the early 20th century, there were 350. Those 2,000-pound creatures were more than prehistoric beasts to the indigenous people. They were partners they didn't even see them as animals they were partners put here by mother earth to attend to each other's needs the tribes used them for every aspect of their lives food clothing shelter tools they left nothing of these creatures unused and because the buffalo literally gave them life the native tribes held them in high esteem when they killed them in the hunts they asked for their forgiveness and they prayed over them they felt spiritually connected to them. But when white settlers and hunters moved west, they turned the buffalo into an industry. They decimated the buffalo and the indigenous tribes simultaneously. In the last two episodes, cruel, selfish humans kind of redeemed themselves by growing private herds and then donating those herds to large preserves. to point where the buffalo population increased few hundred back at the beginning of the 20th century to about 350,000 right now. It's another beautifully photographed, eye-opening Ken Burns product. You will learn the plight of this noble animal. But more importantly, you will get a good look into the hearts and spirits of Native American people. In the early years, they were called savages. But at the end of this film, you will feel that here in the 21st century, we are more savage than they were. And I was so moved by this, and I went. This is a coincidence. I went to see The Killers of the Flower Moon over the weekend, oh, you did. which is just a spectacular piece of filmmaking, about an hour too long, but it was wonderful. And it's about how you know white European descent people just manipulated and abused the native tribes in the early 20th century. And I'm going to do that one next week. It's unbelievable.
1: Just the arrogance. Yeah, the arrogance. I mean,
0: were... Good way to describe it. All right. I'm so happy to introduce this lady. She is a, a person of the stage and the screen and television and a television director. She played Carol Weston on Empty Nest. She played Elaine Lefkowitz on Soap. She was Marty Maraschino in the film Grease. She won a Tony Award as Libby Tucker in the great Neil Simon play You Ought to Be in Pictures. And she played the role again in the film. She was genetically predisposed to be in show business. Her mother is Lee Grant, the actress, director, and writer, and her father was screenwriter Arnold Manoff. She was raised in Malibu, California, and lived to tell about it. About 20 years ago, (laughs) she was asked to leave Hollywood quietly and move to the Pacific Northwest, where she gave her sons the gift of growing up in a healthy, non-show business environment. She has been all over the place, including being a wonderful author in her great new book, not new book, but wonderful book that you need to have your attention called to. The real, true Hollywood story of Jackie Gold. We're so happy to have Dinah with us. How are you, my darling? That is a oh, well, really beautiful setting. That I assume that's not a picture you're sitting in front of there. No,
3: that's my backyard. Man! Right there.
0: <laughs> you're in an island. I have island. to
3: say, I, I feel a little bit kind of like you know what doesn't belong in this picture? I mean, you started with the KKK, <laughs> then you went to this speech about racism, then it was the possible extinction of the buffalo, and then it's like, and Dinah Manoff is here no, to you're, talk about her new book. You're you're,
0: you're the palate cleanser. You're going to make everybody feel like it's worth living. <laughs>
3: happy to be happy to be one.
0: We're we're so happy to have you on here. Um, Thank you. I, I have always been fascinated by the stories of children who have insanely talented parents who somehow are able to blossom on their own, become their own person, and carve out a place on the planet for themselves, especially in the same business their parents were in. Were were your parents supportive of your show, Business Dreams, when you were younger?
3: Well, um, I I, I would say uh, yes and no. Um, You know, yes, I evolved to be my own actress. Uh, It could may have been a little ugly along the way for a period of time you know i felt very intimidated by my mother's career um she was supportive of me being an actress but i wasn't the kind of actress that she was i didn't you know work hard i didn't go to lee Strasberg's, you know the to the to the neighborhood playhouse i mean i was kind of like a lucky little kind of you know beach kid who really? Um, uh, I, I didn't have any other talents to fall back on. I, I, you know, hated school. I didn't, you know, go to class. And I, but I had a talent, and so I really was just lucky. And you know, part of what I wrote about in Jackie Gold. You know, Jackie isn't like she's a, a big superstar. Um, Jackie of, of the book, mm-hmm. um, but. But one thing we had in common, this character and I, is that for a long time, I just felt like a fraud. You know, I felt like I was gonna get found out for not being a serious actress, and it took many years. You know, I was well into my 30s before I began to feel my own identity as an actor and not under the shadow of my mother, who was and still is, you know, the greatest.
0: You you, uh, you said an interesting thing in my vast, uh research (laughs) on you, you said that you you would write to get out some of your teenage angst, you would write poems and you would write poems about how much you hated your mother or how you didn't like your mom and your mom didn't care that they were critical of her. They just thought they were beautifully written poems. And so she supported your writing, which is pretty cool. On the other hand, you said when you started to act, your mother was, could be hard on you about acting because she just did not want to see you get your heart broken.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, at the time, you know, as a young actress, you know, when I did films, I'm not allowed to mention because of the actor strike um, (laughs) at the time. um, uh, What all I really wanted was for her to be my mom, like say, good job. You know, I'm so glad you got you know, that's good for you. But she was so critical of me because she was so scared for me. Of my own, you know, um, uh, progress as an actor in this business, based on her own experiences, that she was very tough and overcritical. And it wasn't until many years later that I had to really train her to just say, you know, good job, (laughs) (laughs) you you look so cute. (laughs) I mean, maybe part of being a
1: mother is you feel like you need to fortify her or in your case, him, against the world and that if she was overly like, you know, like in a school play, oh, honey, you were the best one because you're not going to go on and, you know, leave the house and make a career, you know, doing school plays. You know, you can tell your child that, you know, he was the best one, but maybe she felt like if I don't say these things to her, the world will, and I have to, my first job is to protect her.
3: I I think it was... Partly that. And I think it was mostly her own insecurities about um, uh, being an actress in Hollywood. You know, she was blacklisted for many years. She had to really prove herself. You know, she famously lied about her age by 10 years. She had <laughs> Mary Yorty. She flirted with Mary Yorty back in the 60s and got him to legally change her uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a great story a true that. story? And, I mean, I'm, you know... I mean, she really, you know, she fought very, very hard. And also, you know, as a beautiful, beautiful movie star, she was constantly terrified about aging and, you know, and what it would mean for her, because, you know, unlike actresses in in Europe, we don't treat our older actresses very well. And so I think a lot of that got put, you know, came through in her criticism. To me, about you know how I looked and how I was acting, and you know, and and uh, and now she's just you know my mom's ninety eight now. Yeah. As as of next oh, week, she's ninety eight, and she's a pussycat. Mm. <laughs> I mean, she is now the most encouraging, supportive. Does star- she
0: live in California you know, still, or live up? Uh, come she up-
3: lives in New York. Oh, you know, I walk into a room and she falls down applauding. I oh. mean, you know, I. I I trained her really well. You, know? <laughs> you did so, great. Do you feel that she worried that you walking
1: through the world as an actor were a reflection of her?
3: Maybe, but it's a good question. I'd have to ask her.
0: Mm. Do you That's feel really like she was competitive question. with you at all? Yes. Yeah, That's do. interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we we know a lot about your mom. I I just saw your mom on uh, In the Heat of the Night the other night, which was just a fabulous role for her.
3: Yeah, she was brilliant.
0: But we don't know much about Arnold Mandoff, your father, who was a screenwriter. And he was, and, and this, if you don't mind telling it, it's a fascinating story in these times when, oh my God, you know, we're worried about the Constitution and everything, how your mother got caught up sort of in the peripheral wash of the blacklisting, and your father was truthfully the communist? Am I right about that? He was. A, he was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party.
3: He was. He was. Yes, he was card-carrying member. Um, he, uh, my mother married him. She was very young, and um, and he educated her. I mean, she had no political upbringing or knowledge, and um, and she, she was really brought into the fold of these, you know, charming, charismatic, intellectual uh tribe of of uh writers and actors and artists and she was enamored um she spoke at the funeral of a blacklisted actor and when she spoke at that funeral the next day she was um she was listed in red channels which was the book that you know that they had were you know if you were Uh, if you were on the blacklist, you showed up. I mean, that's hideous. She was was just complimentary
0: to the guy, and that's what got her uh, involved. That's awful.
1: And according to Mayor Yorty, she was 10 years old when
0: this happened. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow, wow, that's very sad.
1: Well, I want to talk about your your book is just astounding. I cannot overpraise it. It's absolutely exceptional and i listened to the audiobook wow. which i don't know if this is a thing i mean you write your book in the form of a screenplay but is this a thing to have a trooper of a troop of actors perform the audiobook because it was just so captivating
3: oh gosh thank you that's just you just made my day um, so uh, i was approached to do the audio- audible and um at first, I sat down and practiced by myself to see if I could read the whole thing. And I couldn't. I couldn't do all the characters. I don't have the vocal chops for it. I'm not trained that way, you know? And so I thought, well, shit, what am I going to do, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and honestly, I'm not an Audible book listener. I mean, I've listened to, like, Michelle Obama's book, you know, like mm-hmm. memoir stuff, yeah. but... But I haven't listened to a lot of Audible books, but I thought, well, maybe I can just, you know, I'm in a pool of talent here where I live in the Northwest. I've directed up here. I've taught acting up here. And I thought, well, I could just, you know, get together my local talent here. I'll narrate the main character. I, I know that voice really well. And I'll have them play all the other parts and we'll just have a good time and see what happens. And that's what we did. It was really like Mickey and Judy. Putting on a show, we went into a little studio up here, learned how to use the 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 recording, you know, machinery, and and we recorded the novel, and it was such a labor of
0: love. What a great way! Because I think some people get, you know, after you listen to like seven discs of an auto. Book, you feel, you know, oh, my God, the droning is driving I me. Mean, especially when you're driving, you're afraid you're going to fall asleep. But presented present it as a, as, a, as a performance sounds like a great idea to it's, keep people like, captivated.
1: So we do have to ask you how much we know, like, write what you know. But and we know that you had a, like a Hollywood Malibu, uh, you know, kids running wild because <laughs> parents are nurturing their careers before they're nurturing their children. <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of a yeah. childhood. But how much of it is uh, autobiographical?
3: none of it is autobiographical but but none of it but you wrote it's, about but but what's I wrote familiar. about the world I know um you know Jackie Gold uh, uh is grows up well no one grows up in Malibu but she's raised <laughs> in Malibu colony I was raised in Malibu colony at a very interesting time you know in the 60s and the 70s which was very different than the Malibu colony of today um it was really um You know, Malibu back in those days was kind of just like a middle class place, except for the colony where all the movie stars hung out. Mm -hmm. And um, in my upbringing as a child, you know, I used to see like Cary Grant driving by the Diane Cannon's house and Lana Turner stumbling over the speed bumps. I mean, it was (laughs) a very different, you know, time. And so it was really fun for me. Uh, going back in into that time, but writing a character who isn't me. Mm-hmm. You know, Jackie Gold's mother is a, an alcoholic who abandons her. Mm-hmm. My mother never abandoned me and, you know, gets tipsy off of two glasses of champagne. <laughs> so I didn't write any of that kind of, you know, personal uh, uh, history of mine. I, I had a different drama you know, than Jackie had. Um, and, and I, and because I was never, I was never a big star, but I knew big stars, you know, I hung out with Bruce and Demi and, and, and those people. So I could write about that world in a way that was, um, familiar. Mm-hmm.
0: You're a great writer. I, I mean, will this happen again? Will you write screenplays or do you write screenplays as well?
3: I, I've i written screenplays. None of them were produced, but they're, they're all still in my um, in my office <laughs> well, this feels Anybody like, like it, uh, this feels like it
1: could be produced tomorrow yeah because it, yeah. it really and i'm telling you if you when you read this book or listen to the book you, you it's full of thrills and surprises you are not going to predict the ending it was so satisfying and so and so meaningful because it's it's kind of like a book that's saying you know you explore a lot of themes very beautifully, and among them is the idea that what we most value in Hollywood is what shines, but not what ultimately fulfills us.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it really is kind of a What Price Fame um, mm. uh, theme, but also uh, it's funny. It's so you know? funny. And, and one thing, you know, I feel that I can bring to a story is I can bring humor to it. Because, um, you know, I'm writing about a, a, a big movie star who's in a coma um, after jumping off a balcony to escape the paparazzi. And the whole story is narrated from a coma, which you would think, well, that's a, you know, a drag. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> but, very but cautionary. She's, she's funny. And, and she sees things, you know, her point of view is people are coming in and out of her hospital room thinking she can't hear them you know these you know the nurse who's trying to steal her boyfriend mm-hmm. you know while she's in the coma and, <laughs> and the confessions at her bedside you know so it's it's a lot of fun but it but it's a a journey where she really finds herself um through replaying her life and and examining you know the mistakes she's made and and uh and what she would do differently if if she's given the chance to live
0: Before we run out of time, I want to talk about uh, you've been a part of groundbreaking television and film. First of all, Soap, which was a wonderful show. And in my opinion, way ahead of its time. First openly gay character on television with Billy Crystal. Did you have a sense that this was an historic undertaking when you were doing it? Yes. And and I think
3: it's probably the only one of the things I've done in my career where I knew walking in that I was part of something huge, but it had been on the air already. And I was a big fan already. And I felt like I was stepping into the pages of my favorite book. You Mm. know, it was like, Oh my God, you know, there's Bert, there's things. (laughs) Puppet. The puppet. Ventriloquism. (laughs) I can't remember what their names are anymore. But you know what I mean? It was like, so I felt I was really uh, excited to be part of that group and and intimidated i mean it was you know yeah
1: well before we let you go fritz and i are both obsessed with neil simon so we do have to get a little bit of a neil
0: simon story from you
3: Oh, my God. I could give you, you know, I could do hours on Neil
0: Simon. He's and my favorite writer of you. all time. When I first came to California, I would read his plays, an anthology of his plays, and they're the only thing that kept me in a good mood. It just made me so happy. One of the greatest writers of all time. G- a genius,
3: yeah.
0: Four shows on Broadway simultaneously in the 70s yeah. or something. So talk about how yeah. that was. And then you did the movie. Well, you got a Tony Award. Then you did the movie. hmm
3: yeah. Well, I, I, what i really like to tell you about is that I was weaned on Neil Simon. Mm. I mean, my mother was doing Neil Simon when I was a little, little girl, oh. and I was learning to read and cueing her on Neil Simon plays. Wow. So by the time it came time for me to audition for the thing I can't name because of the Hollywood strike, <laughs> by the time it it came time for me to audition, those rhythms were mine. Right. I yeah. had him in mm-hmm. me, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I knew how to do Simon speak mm-hmm. and I know that's why I was able to get that part
0: that's what I said about Matthew Broderick. I saw him when he was like nineteen, doing yeah. uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs at the Amundsen yeah. Theater, and I thought this guy yeah. was born to do because ne- he's got the da, 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 he's got the yeah. New York <laughs> rhythm and everything.
3: Exactly, <laughs> yeah, pretty cool.
0: Yeah. All right, well, yeah. I got to tell you, I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, I, 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 you did your family this huge favor. You have two beautiful sons who are now in college. I think she has three. Yes, yeah. three sons. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. I'm I, sorry. Yeah, you had twins. I, there. I, I
3: had. I, I lost a son um, six. Years years ago and oh I have th- now in college thank you yes I'm so sorry
0: Dashal. I'm thank so you. sorry but you 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 were okay. thinking of their mental health and took them out and took them where there's fresh air and humanity and what a beautiful <laughs> thing you did
3: <laughs> yes well you know I was raised in in Los Angeles and Malibu and I just didn't want to do that to
0: my wow you were uh, you're a good you know mom. I
3: I wanted to give them some room to move and and uh and and kind of a life among you know uh, just a, a less of a bubble mm-hmm.
0: you know that yeah. we were in well, we're highly recommending. Weezy's never given a five-star uh, five, bo- for five every, plus, any book, five but The plus. Real, True Hollywood Story of Jackie Gold by Dinah Manoff. We're happy to meet you, my dear. Safe, be safe up so there. That is so
3: sweet. Thank you so much.
0: Well, this actor has been a part of some of the greatest films in the last few decades. Kramer versus Kramer, Stir Crazy, Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2, The Big Chill, The Big Chill, One of my favorite movies of all time, *The Day After*. Teachers, the other side. She is currently in a great play at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood through November fifth. It's called *Love Among the Ruins*. Welcome, Joe Beth Williams. We're so glad to have a chance to talk to you. You know, it's Halloween, and so we wanted to see if you would do something spooky. Being part of *Poltergeist*, one of the great spooky movies of all time. How are you, my dear?
4: I've, I'm good when you re, when you mentioned poltergeist the only thing I can think of is the fact that I found out about five years after we shot that movie that the skeletons that were in the muddy swimming pool with me were real skeletons oh, and see. not props made by the prop department wait but they but couldn't have you told mean... you that
0: though when you were doing it that would have no you.
4: I never would have gotten in that <laughs> wait but do you mean human human yeah human and where did they obtain them you know the prop guy did not go into detail, but he said you can actually buy them far cheaper than than you can make them.
0: Wow. Okay. that's well. Let that me I hope sad. it's not
4: my father and my great aunt. <laughs> you know, that's all I can say. Well, no, let's I just think say they, I think they can come from other countries. Yeah, and it's people you. that you wouldn't have liked.
1: No. They, oh, no, no, I, I'm teasing. I'm All teasing.
0: right, let me tell him about this uh, this great play. This, ah, is, play. this is adapted from a made-for-TV movie in 1975 starring Catherine Hepburn and Laurence Olivier and directed by the great George Cukor. The amazing thing is that Catherine Hepburn and Laurence Olivier did a made-for-TV movie and George Cukor directed it on TV. They don't do that anymore. Those kinds of things. Times have changed. It's an hilarious romantic comedy, a newly realized version of a play, originally written by Robert Downing, a British poet and playwright. Her co-star is the great Peter Strauss. In the play, Jessica Medlicott, is that how you pronounce it?
4: Yes, Medlicott
0: was once a great actress, now is just flat, beautiful, and wealthy, and she's a widow. I don't want to tell the story, I'm going to let her talk about it, but she's accused of a breach of promise and hires England's most famous barrister, lawyer, Sir Arthur Granville Jones, one of the great names. He's going to defend her in her lawsuit. So explain the story a little bit more, flesh it out a little better than I did.
4: Well, I, I will say that the original um, TV movie took place in, I think, 1904. And the the writers, one of whom was a producer on that TV movie, um, they took James Costigan's story. And it's the same story, basically, but they moved it up to 1934 in England. Um, so the Great Depression is sort of figures in, in a way. And I play a rich, supposedly rich, uh, widow who is looking for a barrister to defend me. I've been sued by a far younger man for breach of promise because he asked me to marry him. And in a moment of madness, I said, yes. (laughs) And then I thought about it a day or so later. And I said, no, no, this is insane. Um, So I need a great barrister. So um, I'm brought to... Arthur Granville Jones's office. And I don't want to give too much of the plot away, except to say that one of us thinks we've met before
3: mm. and
4: the other one doesn't think so. Mm. So there's a sort of m- miscommunication right from the beginning. Um, and it it is also the second act is sort of a courtroom drama. It's when we go to try the case Um, It's funny. It is moving at the end. I love it when people cry at the end because I can see them, you know, in the audience. Um, I love that it's about people my age and Peter's age um, sort of having a chance at romance again. Um, And I have to say, following in Catherine Hepburn's shoes and Olivier's shoes is a little daunting.
0: Was that intimidating? Did you watch Catherine Hepburn's performance and take any cues off of it or...?
4: Well, I had seen the original back in 1975. I remember clearly because of those two people. I had watched it, and I had loved it. So when they sent me this play a, a year and a half ago, um, I loved reading it. But I was immediately thinking, oh my god, you know, do I dare? But I felt that the play was different enough, and that the TV movie had aired long ago. Mm-hmm enough that uh, that it would be fun to take it on. And of course it was intimidating, but I think Peter and I have really made it our own.
0: My friends saw it last weekend. They loved you, they loved Peter, they loved the sets, they loved the wardrobe, they loved the humor, they loved the show. Is there a butt coming? No, oh, good. there's no, I, I, they, they just loved it. We need to tell the world about
4: this. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. I, I mean, I think what's wonderful about it is that it's light and in this day and age with what's going on in the world. And um, I I think it's important that people be reminded that they can go to the theater, they can have fun, they can be entertained, and they can feel a connection with the other human beings, not only sitting around them, but in front of them, that that communication between real actors and a real audience is so different from watching a screen. Mm-hmm. And I think we need that sense of community today.
1: Yeah, and I think we're experiencing it differently, having been without it for three years, that we're really embracing it. It feels so good, because the human soul needs it. But I'm wondering, this is a two-person play, right?
4: Uh, well, no, that we have a full cast. Oh, OK. But we are the we are the clearly the two leads. So
1: what are the fun things that go on between? It's Peter Strauss, very handsome. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you're there's some romance. I, I'm expecting between the two of you. But what are some of the fun things that happen between the two leads when you have to carry this whole show and you've got all these inside jokes and kind of you know your relationship? Like, what are some of the fun things that we would love to know about?
4: Well, here's a fun thing that happened actually this last Sunday night, which was. We we wear mics on the stage Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a good sized theater, the El Portal. It's 100 years old and it's, you know, got some size to it. And so we wear mics. Mine is run through my wig uh, and you have to wear a mic pack on your body somewhere uh, with the mic. And in the middle of a scene, Peter's mic pack dropped. I guess it was on a belt on his leg and it dropped down to his ankles suddenly. Oh, no. And he thought that there was a critter oh. that had suddenly attacked his ankle. <laughs> and so we were in the middle of a scene, and he suddenly cut like half the scene. And I thought, what the heck is going on? Uh-oh. And I could see he had this kind of deer in the headlights you know, look on his face, but we got through it. And he came limping off stage and he said, oh, thank God, it was only my mic pack. <laughs> I something
0: had me. But a rat had so, attacked his ankle. That's
4: oh the beauty of live theater. You never know what's gonna happen.
0: But yeah. but you, you brought up a really good point. And, and I worry about this as a comic and hoping that live audiences continue to come out. We're in the age of streaming. It already has come to the point where we're wondering about the future of Uh, theatrical presentations of movies, I'm just hoping that live, uh, for all the reasons you mentioned, live theater and live uh, experiences don't go away completely. I just hope so. Because as you said, it's so different. It's a communal experience. You laugh together and you cry together and you feel a human connection when you walk out of there and comment to one another. Man, I hope that doesn't go away. I hope streaming doesn't kill that.
4: I hope so too and I, I I mean I look at the theater and I think well we know it's been around at least since the Greeks you know yeah so it's been a while been around a, a good while and uh, and so part of me says people in their hearts know that they need that we need these live experiences whether it's watching a comic mm-hmm. live rather than you know on his HBO special whether it's watching Uh, live music, we need that human connection, and to share that with other people. Um, So I feel like uh, theatrical screenings of movies will continue, um, probably in a slightly different arrangement, Um, Mm -hmm. and I really have high hopes that the theater will continue if we give things to people that they want to see.
0: That, right. that's that's what it boils
1: well, down to you know you have to weigh because the popcorn at the theater is better than what you can make at home <laughs> but r- the bathroom ridiculous. weight is better at home Yeah, that, that you is know, true
0: that there's is rarely true.
1: a line you can get right in and out um we do we do a little game called imdb roulette and the rules of the game are simply that i say the name of something that according to imdb you are in and then you tell us who you played and what you remember about the experience
4: on the set. I could be in trouble here. No, 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 no. It's all good stuff. I, I try and remember the names of TV movies I've done. I, Anyway, I'll do my We won't
0: let you fail.
1: Well, I'm going to start with, I like to start with people's first IMDb credit, because sometimes it's like something random that they just needed to do to get in. And yours is is called Jabberwocky. It looks like it was a children's show. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah. It was. And it was shot in Boston. I had gone to school in Providence. And uh, when I graduated from college, I went into a repertory company in Providence and I saw this ad that they were looking for people for this children's TV show in Boston. So I auditioned and I got the job and it was so much fun. It was a it was a puppet named Dirty Frank who had been built by Carol Spinney of the Muppets. And uh, he was run by a wonderful actor named Peter Johnson and Tucker Smallwood uh, uh, was uh, in it with me. And uh, we did it for I don't know maybe a year and a half, and uh, I, I had a ball. It was my first TV experience.
1: So there was. So it sounds like there'd be like a lot of improvisation, and it's kids. Let's have some fun with it. And, oh, it
4: absolutely was. Yeah. yeah.
1: So imaginative. And, and,
4: yeah. And Dirty Frank, you know, had all the jokes. Of course, the puppet gets all the jokes. <laughs> but but Tucker and I managed to hold our own, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. I was lucky in my first experience.
1: Yeah, because it's very, it sounds very creative. All right. Next we have, I think, something you'll probably remember. It's called Kramer versus Kramer. Does that ring anything?
4: Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a vague memory of it. I do remember I, it was, in fact, my first movie, and I had a nude scene. And I had never done a nude scene at oh. all, so oh, that was ra- rather daunting. And the, and there's
1: a little boy there. So wh- yes. how how did you how did you make that happen safely?
4: Justin Henry, yes, he was five years old. Oh my goodness! You know, I I, I went to his mother. And I said, <laughs> "Have you talked to Justin? Have you prepared <laughs> him? Does he know?" She said, "Oh yes." I said, "Justin, you know you're going to shoot a scene today, and Joe Beth is going to be naked in it." And she said, "How do you feel about that?" And he said, "I don't know, Mom. She's awful skinny." Oh, oh goodness! <laughs> and I thought. Do I need this?
3: One? <laughs> no.
0: You know where I, I, I
4: ran? I ran into him actually uh, only like four or five years ago. We did a thing together. Oh. He became an actor and a, and a director, and uh, and we had great laughs. It, he was so charming, and I was so nervous.
0: But that he, movie was really important. I thought because it was one of the first times that this dance. That separating couples have to do when they have a child and how you you know negotiate that legally and emotionally and everything I just loved it I thought it was so honest and wonderful I love that movie
4: I loved the director Robert Benton so much
0: mm-hmm.
4: he was just fantastic and of course Dustin and Merrill not bad people Hello
0: yeah <laughs>
4: wonderful
1: wonderful Okay next we have Stir Crazy
4: Ah wow Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor which is why I bring it up yeah uh and we shot at a a prison in Tucson we had that that fun too uh and uh it which was interesting for me as a the only woman at this particular (laughs) prison um and we had Sidney Poitier as our director wow who was that's right I forgot about that such an amazing man I mean I had worshipped him as an actor, and then to be directed by him was just phenomenal. And and Gene, of course, was such a gentleman, so funny and sweet. And Richard was, you know, Richard, he was wild. <laughs> wild things happened. I remember he lay down in the middle of a street. We were getting ready to shoot uh, a scene where I guess he and Gene were in the street, and they hadn't stopped traffic yet. Uh-oh. And they had to go, with I Richard. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> wow. Wow.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay, how about the big chill?
4: Oh, I have no memories. Yeah, that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, come well. on. Glenn Close, Kevin Kline, Tom Berenger, who just got platoon after that. Jeff Goldblum, I think one of the funniest, greatest actors. William Hurt, Meg Tilly, Kevin Costner. Come on. Costner okay. was dead and still wanted to do the movie.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he didn't know he was only going to be dead. I know they cut him the out. Did,
0: yeah, that's that's true.
4: We we shot you know flashbacks with with the live Kevin Costner and uh, and those were cut. Mm-hmm. That was one of the greatest experiences oh my of God. my life because we were all living on a little island off the coast of South Carolina together because we were shooting in a big house in Beaufort, South Carolina. And so we all spent, we spent all our time together, um, you know, both in the house shooting, because Larry and our director, had us rehearse in the house uh, at length, even before we started shooting. And then at night we were all staying in these condos together. So we would play Trivial Pursuit and charades and- You know, it
0: really, uh, I, 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 the, <laughs> the way you people interacted with one another, it seems exactly like that's what it was. You were so familiar with one another. Was there improvising in that or not?
4: There was improvising in rehearsal a lot. In fact, uh, Larry Kazan had wanted two weeks more of shooting time in the studio, wouldn't give it to him. So they gave him instead four weeks of rehearsal because they didn't have to pay a crew for that. So we did you know a couple of weeks of improvising and 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 creating these relationships between each other and it was so much fun it was so exciting but when it came to shooting lawrence kasdan's script larry wanted his script you know word perfect and uh and so we did, but it, it had that sense of improvisation because we had done so much of it before.
0: Yeah, and the characters are so comfortable with one another. I totally believe that they've been friends all their lives.
1: Now, you guys were in your 30s or late 20s. Mm-hmm. So when you were living together, what what did a group of creative, artistic folks tend to talk about on your downtime in that age
4: group? Themselves. <laughs> <laughs> as any group of 30-year-olds do. No, we, uh, you know, we talked about, we didn't talk about the business very much. Mm. Um, We talked about our histories. We talked about New York because a number of us had lived in New York. Uh, I had gone out with Kevin Klein in New York um, for a period of time. Glenn Close had been with Kevin, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend for six months. Uh, I, uh, many of us lived there, um, and and we talked about our characters, and we gossiped about people we'd worked with. <laughs> you know,
0: Directors usual. to avoid. Yeah, yeah. of course.
1: Yeah. All right, let's do Stop Or My
4: Mom Will Shoot, one of the better oh. titles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was Stallone, yeah. and Estelle uh, Getty sure. played his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know Sly at all before we started shooting and, and he was really funny on the set, which oh. kind of surprised me. I hadn't expected it. Um, and it, you know, I don't think it quite fully worked as a, as a movie, but, but it was fun to shoot because Sly was fun and, and made us all laugh. and teased the crew and teased us, and Estelle was charming and adorable. So um, it, you know, it was interesting. It was really a learning process for me because I came in with Rocky on my brain and there was this funny, funny guy.
1: All right, well, this is like a spoiler alert and I haven't seen the movie, Does Mom Shoot? I
4: think think she did but I don't (laughs) I don't think she hit anybody
1: okay (laughs) okay okay. all right the last one is for Fritz because he
4: he loves this Uh, Wyatt Earp Wyatt Earp well it was my second movie with Larry Kasdan Mm -hmm. and with Kevin Costner um and my I became friends with Catherine O'Hara uh because we were, you know, the few Erp wives, mm-hmm. Erp women, because there were all these guys, you know, shooting on. It was a Silverado set that Larry had had had, had built in Santa Fe for that oh, movie. Oh wow! And the guys were just having so much fun with their six guns, and, <laughs> you know. And Catherine and I were stuffed into corsets and uncomfortable yeah. clothes and. We didn't have the punchlines and (laughs) <laughs> so she and I got to bitch together, which was a lot of fun.
0: That that um, was interesting timing, because it came out just after Tombstone, yeah. which was a really hugely successful movie about the Earp brothers, and then Kevin came out with uh, Wyatt Earp, and I thought, ooh, I, 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 the timing was probably a little... A, a, a they were too.
4: shooting at the same time.
0: And, but it turned out to be enormously successful as well. I think Tombstone piqued the interest about that period with people. I thought they I were guess, both wonderful. I guess so. Mark Harmon was in our movie,
4: and and uh, Kevin had access to the the you know the company plane, the private plane, and so uh, we would often hitch rides on that plane <laughs> from L. A. to Santa Fe and then back. And and Mark had a great story that he was at Burbank Airport, private you know in or Van Nuys Airport, the private airport, and he got on the plane, went out and got on the plane, and he was walking down the aisle introducing himself. He's, Hi, I'm Mark Harmon. Hi, I'm Mark Harmon. And he came to Mel Gibson <laughs> and introduced himself. And Mel Gibson said, you know, Mark, I think you're on the wrong plane. This is, <laughs> this is not the Weilerer plane. No. So, yeah. I always loved that.
0: That's funny. They're, they hadn't taken off yet, I'm hoping. <laughs> wow.
4: Fortunately
1: not. They hadn't taken off yet. Uh, So let's talk for a second about, you work with the SAG SAG Actors Guild Fund. And right now, actors are... No, no, it's the SAG-AFTRA Foundation. Foundation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I needed you to help me with the title. So I know what you guys isn't part of the negotiation. It's part of like helping actors. So how are we helping them during this time period and how are they doing?
4: Well, people who are suffering, you know, f- financial problems can can come to the foundation for for help, for aid. We are um, we still can help them with pay some bills, like their health care bills and those kinds of things. Um, they, we're still having our programming of of classes for actors and voiceover classes, so that people, you know, who are looking for ways to spend their time productively can can go to these classes. Um, the foundation that you're thinking of both the Actors Fund and the SAG After Foundation, which are two separate charities, but we both work towards the same goals. Okay. And sometimes we work together uh, as charities. Okay.
0: I, I was one of the interesting thing that happened in, in the midst of all the discussion about the SAG After strike is that some of the uh, stars, people have this perception that all stars are rich. If you're in TV, you're rich and everybody's rich. And somebody started the, uh, the idea of showing how small your residual checks were. And so they posted those on social media. And somebody got like a 19 cent re- residual check from doing some show in the 60s or 70s there's no money in residuals really and in streaming none so i i thought that was eye opening for people who think all people in tv and movies are rich
4: yeah and and you know 90% of us aren't working at any given time out yeah. of our union um so it's a very few uh, the the 1% who make a lot of money the george Clooney's and you know um mm-hmm other big Meryl Streep's and other big stars make big money. But then there's so many actors in so many shows and so many movies who earn a a, a small amount of money and and survive on that. Mm-hmm. And and not only I mean, one of the problems with the, you know, with not filming right now is it is all of the other, uh, workmen and work women who are involved in a show from hair and makeup to costumes to grips to camera people to electricians to caterers who are out of work because because they don't want to pay And it affects all the
0: peripheral communities. I live in Toluca Lake, Burbank, Toluca Lake, North Hollywood. All those little tiny businesses that sort of thrive on the work from the entertainment business are really hurting right now. There's a great documentary about that on Netflix called Broadway Rising. And it's about how... Uh, Broadway was affected by the pandemic and all these little businesses, the dry cleaners, the florists, the caterers, all the people that, you know, sort of cater to the work of the, the Broadway theaters and how they suffered and how out of work actors went to work in the flower shops because that was the only work they could get. It's really wonderful. Of course, it ends on a positive note when stuff opens back up, but it, it's sort of what people are experiencing around here. It, 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 it's the peripheral damage is unbelievable.
4: I'm going to look for that documentary. That's called Broadway
0: Rising. It's really wonderful. You'll love it as a performer.
4: Are we close to a resolution? Hard to say. Mm-hmm. We are, I believe, back at the table. Right. The, the, the producers have come back to the table. You know, they left uh, a week and a half ago or whenever uh, because they just felt our demands were so outrageous, which is absolutely untrue. Um, and, you know, there are ploys, there are ploys that everybody pulls <clears throat> in these kinds of situations. But I know and I, uh, I know the heads of our union, I, you know, and I know I have been on a negotiating committee and I know how sincere they are in, in fighting to get us back to work. But to get us back to work on a wage that people can live on. Mm-hmm. And the whole AI thing is very, very scary it for really everybody. It really industry. is. It's very dangerous.
0: Yeah, and the that, fact that they could use your image in perpetuity without having to pay you is ridiculous.
1: That's you know, mm-hmm. then then our employment goes away completely. So it's um I mean it's how those skeletons felt on poltergeist <laughs> like I'm in a movie and what am yeah. I getting?
4: You know, they were just happy to
0: have a life, <laughs> okay? <laughs> well, we need to have you go see this play because in the dark malaise that we find the planet in right now, this will make you feel good. It's funny, and it's beautiful. It's got two skilled actors in the lead and lots of others. It's at the El Portal Theater uh, on Lancashire Boulevard, North Hollywood, and it's up until November fifth. Uh, uh, unless it gets extended, go to elportaltheater.com for tickets. We highly recommend it. What a pleasure to talk to you, Joe Beth. Thank you so much.
4: You too, Fritz. I feel you have been my weatherman for oh, so Oh, my gosh. Years. That's a great
0: compliment. He's
4: just—he's <laughs> going to
0: come over and just deliver the weather for
4: you. No, on, when I'm doing my <laughs> show, you show, showing...
3: my personal
4: weather he's, Yeah, he's going go door to door.
0: Sunday goes down at 3.30, and mine starts at 3 o'clock, so I can't even go over there and shake your hand afterwards because I'm knee-deep in the black emotional hole of my life on stage in the other theater.
1: Wow, there's gotta oh, be some way that you can Thank you
4: so much for having me. It was okay. a
1: pleasure
0: talking. A pleasure. To All you. right,
1: I'm gonna read our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, or we are at MediapathPod Pod and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPath Podcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Weezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with all kinds of wonderful bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast, where we would love it if you would subscribe. You can write to us at MediaPathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us with your friends over brunch and on social media. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. and we want to thank our wonderful guests, Dina Manoff and Joe Beth Williams. Our team includes Dina Friedman, who's our producer. John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker, here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.